Hi everyone, this is Dr. Cheryl Selman and welcome to The Love Code. This is a program that really is designed to support your spiritual upliftment really. It's to allow you to open your heart, to open to greater healing, to understand that we are all part of this connected world and to appreciate with gratitude, forgiveness, all the gifts were given in our life. So every week I have some very special guests that I invite on and we share, have conversations, and they're always guests that leave us with inspiration. And today is no different <laughs> from every other conversation. I have a great guest in store. And if you are visiting me here for the very first time, Please come back every week. This show is on, as you know, every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. But if you would like it sent to you personally, then just go to my website, Dr. Cheryl Selman, and opt in there, and I will email the shows out. And also, if you like me over on my Facebook page, which is What Women Must Know, and that is uh, the name of the other show I have on Progressive Progressive Radio Network, which is every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. So uh, either way, you'll get both of the shows, and then you won't have to miss any of these fantastic conversations. I hope you'll be joining me. It'll be fun to have you as part of my community. So let's talk about what my guest is sharing with us today. I have a delightful guest. He is Kevin Noble Mallard. He is the author of a brand new book called Fry Bread, a Native American family story. We're going to talk all about the uh, reclaiming of Native American wisdom and healing and culture and the importance of that for all of us. And uh, a little bit about Kevin. He is a professor of law at Syracuse University and a contributor to the New York Times. He specializes in family law, constitutional law, and film. He has been a visiting professor of law at Columbia, Fordham, NYU, Hofstra, and New York Law School. Professor Maylard has written articles for The Atlantic, The Week, Essence, and has appeared on MSNBC, ABC News, and Al Jazeera America, NPR, and The Katie Couric Show. He is also the author of a children's picture book called Frybread from Roaring Brook McMillan, and he is originally from Oklahoma. He is a member of the Seminole Nation, Miss Kukuski Band, and I really hope I said that correctly. Kevin, and Kevin grew up right here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I am doing this podcast from, so it's just so much fun and a thrill to have Kevin with us today. So hello, Kevin, or should I call you Professor Maylard? I never know. Kevin, that's totally fine. Uh, you know, um, it, it, it's, it's wonderful having you as a guest. I received your beautiful new book. Congratulations. This is a wonderful so book. Much. It's a children's book with a mission because it's, such, it's so interesting, Kevin, to read out all your credentials as this law professor, and here you are writing a children's book. So we'll get into all yeah. of that and sure. understand the purpose behind it. So, you know, I always like to start off by asking my guests to share a little bit about their journey and how they got to where they are at this point in their lives. So to just jump right in there. 
Well, I grew up in Oklahoma, and uh, my mom is from Wewoka, Oklahoma, the capital of the Seminole Nation, and my father is from Philadelphia. And so we lived in uh, South Tulsa. I went to uh, Jenks High School, and so I was always in my school the only person of color uh, for years and years and years. And there were not many Native people. There were not many Black people. Um, I have both ancestries um, uh, going on in my family. And so I think that going through high school um, really shaped who I am today, uh, being one of the only people of color and being isolated in that way. And, you know, I love all of my friends. I loved um, the environment. But then Seeing afterwards, like how there are so many other different cultures and ethnicities and and races and representations of identity has really opened my eyes to the massive heterogeneity of the world. And so I went to graduate school for a really long time. Um, I did a PhD and a JD, and my interests were always somehow tied to my upbringing, right, about mixed uh, racial heritage, legitimacy, membership in groups. And so all the scholarship that I've done, I went to law school with the express purpose of becoming a law professor. And my dissertation, my scholarship has all been about those issues of inclusion and mostly about what it means to be a member of a certain group. And so that is part of the goal of this children's book that I wrote, Fry Bread, which is definitely about uh, the bread and the food, and we'll definitely talk about that today. But it's also about the wide diversity of Native people in the United States, and I think fry bread mirrors that pattern of development. So the children's book is something that I've been doing for a long time, the same subject and the same um, ideologies and the same thoughts, but it's just to a different audience. And so I like to say that I'm still doing scholarship, except this time the people are just short. And so they, um, we had, there's definitely the pictures and there's the prose of the book itself, but we also have an extensive back matter, uh, the notes for teachers, parents, uh, other educators, librarians, so then they can have um, uh, additional readings if they want to know more. And I spent so much time on that back matter, probably uh, equal if not more time on the back matter uh, than I did with some of my academic articles. So I always want to say that I should get tenure again for doing this book because it took that much work to create it. Wow. Labor of love, really, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And uh, I just made a batch of fry bread uh, for my class uh, today uh, to celebrate the release of the book. Well, well, we can almost smell it from here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my house is permeated with the smell yeah. of fried bread right now. You know, feel free to eat it as we're talking. It's okay. It's like, <laughs> I'm sure it's hard to stop. You know, so this book in a way is a metaphor 
uh, of the journey of the so, so many Native peoples. But before I actually want you to explore that whole theme, um, I, I'd like to ask you, so you were brought up, you're part Native American, part Afro-American. Were you actually... Um, indoctrinated into the Seminole Nation and into the culture? Was that a strong part of your upbringing? Yeah, I wouldn't say indoctrinated, because then you I think of something a little darker and uh, kind of on the other side. But Okay, uh, wrong I word. Grew up, <laughs> I, I grew up um, going to Wewoka every summer, and my mother is really tied to that community. So mm-hmm. I was always around family members. I was always like in the same environment as all of the other people. And one of the greatest parts of that was the communal um, action of making fry bread. And this is something that is a very strong tie that I have um, to my family and then also to the larger community. And I think that food is one of those things that brings people together in that way. And so, you know, now I live in New York, and then you necessarily you don't necessarily think of Native people being in Manhattan, right? We live uh, in Union Square, which is, you know, right in the middle. Um, you know, there's like subways, you know, you walk everywhere, you know, there's tall buildings. But New York City has the highest population of Native people of any city in the United States, and that's not something that people think of at all because you think of Native people stereotypically living in Arizona or on a reservation, and then you think of them looking a certain way as well. And so this is a way where I'm bringing or I'm hoping to bring awareness that there is a massive, crazy, and rich diversity of the ways that Native people live. So, you know, like when people say, like, were you brought up um, in the culture? You know, I was brought up by my mother. I was brought up by, um, you know, other people in my family. And and every family definitely is raised differently, um, but it's very definitely a strong part of our identity and the way that we grew up and the way that my mother grew up. And and it's a really extraordinary community because there are a lot of African Americans in the Seminole Nation. Uh, there are mixed uh, ancestries. There are um, a lot of white people in this area. So it's really a tri-racial blend of all of these different cultures and it's remarkable when when you go to this town because it's pretty much like one-third 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 of all three of of these groups and and it just really defies what people imagine to be native and what it is like to grow up as a native person there aren't reservations per se in oklahoma there um, there's Indian country where it's just more people from the tribe live in certain areas, and there are centers of government, like my mom's town, Wewoka, is the center of the Seminole Nation, or Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is the center of the Cherokee Nation. There are all of these different seats of the government, but those towns are also just American towns as well, right, where there are other people that are not tribal members that live there. And so it's a way of 
coexisting, like in the native community and then also in the state or the national community at the same time. So it's different growing up in as native in Oklahoma than it would be growing up, you know, say if you grew up on the Navajo Reservation or you grew up at Standing Rock or you grew up in an Alaskan village because there are so many other people that are around that are not members of the tribe. So um, when I think of, you know, what was it like to grow up as Native, it's very similar to the ways that other people grow up in rural places. But it's also, of course, very unique. And, you know, for people who don't really know much about um, Native American culture and and, and just how um, how it's part of a, a greater community, I, I know that, um, well, I mean, you would know, too, that in the United States, if you have Native American ancestry, of, what, is it a quarter of your blood is Native American? I mean... You are you qualify to get all the benefits that's available to Native Americans because there there is special health care, right? Health care and education, and you're it's called being on the rolls, isn't that? Isn't is that correct? Well, every every tribe has different uh, members membership requirements. So our tribe has no minimum blood quantum. Some other tribes. Uh, do have blood quantum minimums. And so what this does, especially if there's no minimum, it creates a massive diversity of the way that people look. Because someone could be an enrolled uh, member of the Cherokee Nation. Their past um, chief, um, I think it was his name, um, Bill Smith. I, I know I'm getting it wrong. But he was like three thirty seconds Cherokee, and he was the chief of the the Cherokee Nation. So it's not about um, ancestry so much. It's somewhat tied because there has to be that familial connection to the tribe, but it's not necessarily uh, categorically genetic what it means to be a member of the tribe. So it's like if you're a member of the tribe, like, I'm a member of the tribe, and, you know, all of my mother's parents and grandparents were tribal members, but they're all different blood quantum. Some of the blood quantum um, count <laughs> in the eyes of the tribe. Some of them don't. And tribes change their membership requirements all of the time for good reasons, and a lot of very controversial reasons. In Oklahoma, that's definitely the case, uh, where they could change what it means to be Native, usually for some financial reason, and people want to make the, the roll numbers smaller so then those small number of people can have a larger share of the pie. But the struggles in defining what it means to be Native, it really goes to the heart of people's subjective personal identities and how they believe themselves to have grown up. So being Native is something that is very complicated, and it is also something that is approved by your tribe, and then it is also approved by the federal government. So 
one thing that uh, I'm a law professor and uh, other people that teach Indian law will say that there are four branches of government, right? So we have our regular executive, judicial, and legislative. And then a lot of Indian law scholars will say that the fourth branch would be Indian country because it's completely complicated. Most people don't understand it, but we can think of each one of these tribes being a small country or territory within the United States, just like you would have um, Lesotho in the middle of South Africa, or you would have Liechtenstein or Andorra or uh, the Basque region, Catalonia. All of these have this relationship to the federal government. We could think of them as almost like little separate countries in the middle of the United States. And then there are 570-something of these individual tribes that are federally recognized in the United States. And each one of these tribes is completely different. They're all over. They range from Florida all the way up to Maine, over to Alaska, tons in California. And so each one of these countries, um, like these Indian countries, is very different than the others. So there's not really any way that there is one standard for membership in an Indian tribe. It could even be where your mother has to be the member, not your father. If you have um, a child with someone who is not a tribal member. In some tribes, if you are a woman and you are a tribal member and you have a child with someone who is not a tribal member, your children do not count as members. But in that same tribe, if you're a man and you have a child with a woman who is not a tribal member, your kids will be tribal members. So we have this complete you know, diversity of applications and different reasonings for every single one of these tribes. And the way that we come to decide what membership is, it is dealt with on a tribal level at that smallest level, the people who know best um, what, you know, their community is like. They're the ones that are making those decisions. And it's really hard to um, change that from outside, right? We think of each one of these tribes as sovereign nations, as individual communities, and usually the federal government defers to what that tribe decides. And so there might be, you know, kind of um, a national impression that Native people are people with one quarter blood or more, but you know, as we could see with controversies about Elizabeth Warren, right, it, is she Cherokee or not, right? You know, for a while she was saying she was, and, and, you know, afterwards she's saying that she's not. But even if she were, like, one 256th Cherokee, <laughs> she would still be a valid tribal member, even if she's never stepped foot in Tahlequah, mm -hmm. even if she's never been to Oklahoma, I know a guy, he's another law professor in Utah, and he grew up in France, right? So then when you talk to him, 
he has a French accent and he's wonderful. And, you know, so you're looking at this French guy, but he's also Osage. And so um, if you passed him on the street, you probably wouldn't think that he is Osage or that he is native, especially when he starts talking because he sounds French. But he is a fully, you know, full-fledged tribal member, and it doesn't matter where you grew up, and it doesn't matter what the ancestry is. All that matters is the political status of the membership in the tribe. Hmm. So so your father was Afro American. Did you did you get involved with that community as well through your father? Yeah, well he grew up in Philadelphia and he's lived, you know, in Oklahoma since then. Um and so the, his people came over from St. Martin in the 1800s. So they grew up in Philadelphia. They lived in the same house for like 60,000 years, um, <laughs> very close to Penn, uh, where I went to law school, only a couple of blocks from the university. Um, yeah, so I, where I grew up in Oklahoma, there were not any other black people around. Um, I grew up with mostly white people, um, and it wasn't until I went to college and definitely to graduate school and law school where I was around other black people every day, um, you know, and there was more of a choice, and you know, and an availability of selection of friends because it did not exist that much when I was in high school. Wow. What was that like for you suddenly – you know, going into a more diverse community than where you were raised. I loved it, right? I And I always knew that I was probably going to go out of state to go to college, um, somewhere preferably like on the East Coast, somewhere where there were a lot of people from different places, and then you'd be able to absorb what all those different um, influences were. Uh, I remember when I got to Duke, um, that's where I went to college, for the first time, I had not been around a lot of Jewish people before. And I remember, like, I shudder to think at some of the questions or at the pronunciations. I remember, like, a lot of people were gone first semester freshman year because they were going home for the holidays. And I remember <laughs> calling it Rush Hosanna, right, not Rosh Hashanah. And people were like, have you never – you know, do not know any Jews. And I was like, I grew up in Oklahoma, right? Like like 99% of the people are, you know, Christian. And so there weren't a lot of other people. And then, you know, now I live in New York and it's like the opposite. It's very different. Um, now you know so, a lot of Yiddish. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah, so, I mean, the influences and then meeting uh, people, you know, who are Asian-American, people whose parents grew up in other countries, um, you know, people from all over the United States, people of mixed racial background. I had not encountered that that much um, in, Oklahoma, in Oklahoma in my high school. And um, so going to college and then to graduate school and law school, there was a lot more of that. And and I think that that has informed many of the ways that I approach my my writings now. 
You know, I, uh, I I actually spend a lot of time in Australia, Kevin. I, I'm an Australian resident. Okay. I lived there for 18 years, and I go back and forth every year. And wow. what I've always loved about living in Melbourne, where I used to live, um, it's right. so multicultural. It's so, I mean, yes. 100, 170 different cultures in places like wow. Sydney and Melbourne. And there's always cultural things happening from restaurants to festivals to just, you know, all sorts of opportunities to interact with different cultures. And I love it, you know. I mean, I think yes. that's where we're going in the evolution is like we're you know appreciate the the diversity but it's the unity and diversity we're all every culture is fascinating and yes. it's a history that comes with each culture but we're all part of the same family experiencing it in 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 different ways but you know we're we're all the same, really, and uh, so I, I mean, I and I travel a lot, and I, I just love exploring different cultures. I, I, I was in the Peace Corps at one point in my life. Oh, okay. Was over in Malaysia, right? So I, I lived in a community yeah. there that was primarily Chinese and Indian, and I would hang out in the temples and you know, yeah. all these, all these events. Because it's it's fascinating. I just love experiencing different cultures. It teaches us. Yeah, and I think more, it I teaches think, us we're the same right. and we're different. You know. Yeah, and I think it also might be a function of the time. Uh, so when I grew up in Oklahoma in the 1970s and 1980s, diversity wasn't on a cult, you know, a national agenda or uh, recognition of difference. I think there was more adhesion to a majoritarian culture and then mm. i mean definitely like the the interests of fitting in that's never going to go away but now i think there's more recognition of the way you know different ways that people live we can see this reflected in books and in television and that didn't necessarily exist so much when i was growing up so coming to write this children's book was one way where I could grapple with these ideas of representation and being able to help these kids be seen. Because when I was writing this book at the beginning, I, um, when my children were much younger, I was looking for books for them. And so I wanted books that were about our huge, diverse world. And, and I wanted them to have books that were, um, that had black characters and that had Jewish characters that had Asian characters. My partner is Asian, so our children are half Asian. And I wanted them to be able to see themselves reflected in these books. But when I looked for books that were about Native people, the only books that I could find were about Thanksgiving or Pocahontas or Pilgrims, right, where it would have the pictures of the people in those black suits, um, you know, Pilgrim clothes with the white collars, and they have those guns that look like horns, the muskets. And there was nothing that signified that Native people were alive today, nothing that was about here's how people – eat. Here's how people play with their pets. Here's how people deal with conflicts with their siblings or at school. And so 
the year that I started this project of this book about fry bread, there were 3,600 children's books published that year. And then could you take a guess as to how many books were by and for Native people? Can you take a guess? Uh, none. Six. Almost, very close. Six books close. out of those out of those 3,600. And I was wow. so appalled by this, right? Because there there were a couple that I found. I think I found no more than four books. And I was looking on Amazon. I was looking um, at my local independent bookstore. I was looking at Barnes & Noble. And there was just nothing out there that existed at all. And so I thought, this is really wrong. And I thought, well, I write a lot. And I write about issues about Native people. I write about issues of legitimacy. And then I think I could probably come up with something that would be a good book, a, a good topic to write on. And so here we are years later where the book has finally come out. And it's definitely been a long and very rewarding journey. But the whole purpose of this was to create something where kids could see themselves reflected on the pages and then they wouldn't have to feel that they don't exist. I remember growing up in Oklahoma and, you know, like if there's some product that is released or um, a movie that's out or some type of trend that's happening and it says like available in most states. And I remember always just expecting that Oklahoma was not going to be on that list, right? Because then it's like, okay, we're the last state to, like, you know, get certain things. This was in the 70s and the 80s. Or it could be um, what does it mean to be included on a list, you know, of consideration for, like, diversity. And we don't see a lot of discussion about Native Americans as being part of this equation of diversity, usually the focus would be on African American or um, Latino or now, you know, in the Supreme Court with Asian Americans. But usually Native people are not considered as part of this conversation, even in the conversation on what it means to have diverse books and to have more representation. Native people are usually the last people that are considered, and it's only been in the past couple of years where there's been a, you know, substantial groundwork of titles that are out there, especially in the past two years, where more uh, works by and for Native people that are either written or illustrated um, by Native authors have come on the market. And so I'm glad to be a part of this, um, this great movement. Uh, there have been other names that have uh, been around for a while, Cynthia Leidick-Smith, uh, Joseph Brukhock, Julie Flett. Those are pretty much the only names that I could find about five years ago when it came to Native Americans' children's literature. And now there are a lot of, there. I wouldn't say a lot, but there's a handful of other people and that number is growing, right? You know, because once one person sees, like, they got their book published, it, it will encourage someone else to come up with their own story. And it will also encourage editors to take a chance on these books. Like, my editor took a chance on me because I had never tried a children's book before. But I remember I contacted her and I said, I have this idea. 
Um, you know, I write a lot for the Times. I write academically. Um, but I've never written a children's book before. And this is something that is really important to me to have these kids be seen and not forgotten. And, and I want to work against this idea that Native people lived a long time ago and they don't exist now. And so when we have the existing books that are, you know, all about like Thanksgiving and people are playing dress up and the kids are making teepees in their living room and putting like, you know, feathers in their hair blankets around their shoulders, right? And then they're like playing Indian. And that's just wrong, right? Because then it's saying that, you know, there are no people around that are in modern times at all. And the goal of this book was to say, here we are, we're here, we're modern, we're contemporary, we're still here, and it's not something that has vanished, right? Something that has gone out with the the years, something that happened two or three hundred years ago. So when we realize that there are so many more tribes and that there's such there's such a great diversity of people within what we would see as Indian country today in cities, in suburbs, in towns and on reservations, I think that this works toward a greater understanding of what this past was and the reasons why we collectively believe as Americans that Indians existed in the past. And I think that having more literature, especially in these early years, will contribute to a, a more diverse and richer understanding of Indian people. I think that most people's education about Native people starts and stops in elementary school. And the books that are available are all about Thanksgiving, stuff that happened a long time ago. If you Google any tribe name, you could just put in Cherokee on Google. You could put in Potawatomi. You could put in Navajo or Blackfeet. And on Google, the first couple of responses will be the you know, people have also searched for, and it lists these questions, not the links to the websites, but, you know, the questions that comes up. And if you Google any of these tribal names and you just have the tribe's name in there, most of the questions that are populated are all about the past. Where did the Cherokees live? How did the Navajo disappear. And it's like, they have not disappeared. They have this enormous territory, you know, in New Mexico and Arizona that's as big as a state itself. And so I think that the general national impression of Native people is that they're, they're all shamans or, you know, like these incredibly spiritual people, like these mythical figures from the America's past. And not people that live today, like right next door to you, or people that might be teaching your class or kids that are at the same school with your own children. So in saying we are still here, this is a way of affirming our own existence for ourselves and saying, look, now we have more books that represent us. We are teaching this to children. And I think that establishing 
this base of knowledge for children in their early years is better for future generations as opposed to previous generations, like if you grew up in the 1950s, um, you know, people were playing cowboys and Indians. And then when they're playing these games, they're thinking about stuff that happened a long time ago, not stuff that happened, you know, right then and there. And so that's the way that people came to know about Native people was through these games or through camps when, you know, if you go to sleepaway camp and they have the color wars or people are, you know, putting war paint on their faces, there's different tribes in the camp at all. So all of these ideas that previous generations and even my generation would have grown up with were thinking of Indians as past figures, as something that was more about a myth and a story rather than an actuality. And so what this book does, it brings all of that into the modern forefront and says, look at these people eating food with their family. And at the end of the book, there's a recipe so you could make it yourself uh, and participate in this uh, larger culture of food, community, and family. Oh, great for that. That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, when we talk about fry bread, which is the name of your book, there's a history yeah. behind it. And I'd like you to talk about that history. Yeah. So fry bread was first, it was believed to be first made by the Navajos or the Diné people in the mid-1800s. So this is the story of a lot of native tribes they're removed from their ancestral lands, and the government takes that land, and then they make, like, Miami, right? <laughs> Seminoles came from southern Florida, pretty much where Miami is right now, um, uh, or Tampa, that area, right? And then with the Navos, they came from their ancestral lands, and then they were placed on reserved lands. And so this reserved land was far from everything that they had ever known. So their diets that they had depended on for thousands of years, their fruit, their game, their uh, grains that they would have used, none of those were available to them in these new places. And it's not just the Navajo. It could be you know, Seminoles coming from Florida. It could be Cherokees coming from Georgia. So what happens in this new area where they're around – completely new environs. They have to eat somehow, but they, you know, don't understand what this new food is, right? It's like, imagine if everyone on Earth had to move to the moon, and you're like, okay, there are no grocery stores here anymore. There are no, um, you know, we can't grow our gardens the way that we normally did back at home on Earth. So this is the same thing, right? These people, Navajos, a long time ago would have been on the equivalent of the moon for them. And so this new area, they're given commodity, food commodities by the United States government. So what are they given? Flour, salt, sugar, oil to make something. And so what fry bread emerged as was a food of survival. And it was about making something from what little they had 
and they took that little thing that was given to them by the government because they didn't have anything else, and they made the best of it. So we can think of fry bread as this, it's a struggle dish, right? It, it is a food of survival, and it connects modern people to these deprivations of the past. And so the way that fry bread is consumed now is more about celebration and community and togetherness. So we could even think of fry bread as a communion of sorts, right? If you're Christian and you go to church and you participate um, in, in mass, you, you know, take the wafer and then you take the bread and then the consumption of that is to remind everyone of a previous happening in that religious culture. So this is kind of what fry bread is, right? It's not so much that it, it's definitely not religious, but then it connects us to that past. And now this is something when we eat it at festivals, at tribal gatherings, at family gatherings. This is something that brings us all together and it links us back to those initial moments when people, when Native people's lives changed forever. And, and I think part of the recognition, at least for Native people eating fry bread, that recognition would be that we had a different life before the government took a lot of things away, but we are still here. This is my mantra for this book, right? We are still here in a way of saying, even though all of these things were taken away, people did not disappear. They did not vanish into thin air. They did not die off, despite what we are taught in our schools. And I think that Native history is something that is just completely overlooked in American education, right? We think of um, encounters between uh, Anglo or Spanish or Italian uh, discovery and native indigenous people was all about amicable relations, right? Oh, they had a feast in November and they, you know, they have meat and vegetables and dessert and they all got along. That is completely the opposite of the story because every inch of land in the United States is stolen land, right, except for those lands that are reservation lands, right? And even that was somebody else's land at one time because then people were moved to these territories. So I think that this is something that we need greater acknowledgement of. And then also the pattern of destruction of wars, of killing of people, the very dark side of natives and non-native encounters in the United States. But it's all patched over, like, that happened a long time ago. This is the better, because now we have, you know, places like Los Angeles and Tampa, Florida, and Chicago with tall buildings and, um, you know, electricity. This is manifest destiny, right, where we need to take over these lands for the betterment and improvement of society. But in doing that, it's saying, well, we don't recognize that there were people that were here before us, and there were people that were here that are still here with us now. So it's not that this is a chapter that we can close 
on now, but it's something that we have to deal with as more of a public reckoning. And I can see that there are patterns of public recognitions of these past racial struggles where there has been a violent history, one of deprivation and one that is a history of acute domination of these minority groups, whether it could be slavery or it could be taking over former um, former uh, lands of Mexico or Japanese internment camps. And it's only like kind of in the past like 20 years or so where there's been more of a movement to say, let's look back on this and let's deal with this. You could even see in, you know, discussions about reparations. Some people don't want to talk about that at all. They want to say, well, let's just get along, all of us right now, and, like, not worry about our differences. We shouldn't have to resort to these, you know, ludicrous ideas of diversity and difference. We should all just see each other as the same person. But I think in order to do that, there has to be an acceptance of where we came from, because then that denies the people that are descendants of that, whether you're descendants of slaves, or whether you're native, right, in modern um, culture now, or whether you're descendant of Japanese Americans, or um, that were interned, or Chinese men that were brought over as indentures to work on railroads or in rice fields. That accepting that now and discussing that and then being active about the wrongs that were committed against these people is the only way to reconciliation. And I think that there's such a hesitation about that because it's one admitting wrongs on the part of most white people in the United States, even if they're saying, I didn't do this, right? I wasn't alive in 1800 where I, you know, like shot an arrow and killed, you know, someone a long time ago, or I was not the one that interned these people. But we are in a aftermath of this now where we are still dealing with the results of this, right, which could result in segregation or income inequality or access to education. And these are all holdovers from these previous wrongs. And then most people, the majority would be satisfied with this inequality because it benefits them and it doesn't put everyone on the same footing. But in order for everyone to be able to thrive, to succeed, to have access to all of these different things, the only thing that can come from that that will improve that is that recognition of that horrific, awful, depriving past. So, um, yeah, there's so much that has to be resolved. You know, in, uh, Australia has a similar history of its uh, horrendous, horrendous um, usurping of Aboriginal culture, land, people. And they actually had, the government actually initiated a sorry day. You know oh, about that? Okay. They no, actually, I don't. They, they call it, it was the sorry, you know, sorry day. And acknowledging and asking for, you know, apologies 
apologies right. to, the, to the indigenous people for what they did. It was an acknowledgement from that on that government level, which you know is part of healing. Which there's a lot of healing that has to happen in Australia. Healing, yes, yeah. You know, and, and it's similar here. I mean, the atrocities that were done to Aboriginal people were done to Native American people. In our right. past, and I'd love to see a sorry day here. You know, yeah. <laughs> that would just and, be and healing. Think, yeah, and I think that healing is a great word because if you think about like when someone is sick or they have an injury in their own body, what is the process to get that person back to health? Right? They take medicine or they relax. There's some type of activity that has to happen in order for them to get back to, you know, their 100%. So there's some action and like a concerted effort at healing for that to happen. And I think the same process has to occur for this cultural healing to happen. It's not something that's just going to go away on its own with time, right? There has to be litigation, right? There has to be policy. There has to be, um, uh, you know, a, a rethinking, an active rethinking or um, a moving around of resources that makes more of this access possible because it's not just going to happen on its own. Yeah. So let's just go back to fry bread for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. The time we have. Um and I, I, I'm looking at that recipe page, which I'm so glad you kind of made it a little healthier than what the original recipe was. I mean, back in, in those early days when those tribes were moved and they were given rations, I mean, they were given white bread and white sugar, you know, white flour, white sugar. I mean, they they were given terrible foods that really contributed to a lot of the illness and weakening of the health of the population. Can you imagine going from population that would, you know, hunt and grow and lived on the land and suddenly be given food that had no nutritional status or very little. Right. Or protein. To, you know, yeah. nothing, right? But so I you seen I you added some unrefined coconut oil in it, which I'm very happy to see. Um <laughs> Well you know at um, the time when I did this, coconut oil was all the rage, right? And then now, you know, there are all these studies, you know, it's just like Anything with food, it's like you could pick anything. Corn, corn is great for you. Corn is not bad for you. Now corn is great for you again. And so that's what happened with coconut oil. Um, but um, I just want to say to um, everyone listening, it's it's a gorgeous book. The the um, the illustrations are fantastic, and it looks like some of your family might be in here. Even I don't know, but they I'm definitely so are my children, <laughs> and and, I, and I'm in there as well. I'm definitely in there. we're all in there. I kind of guessed. I kind of saw you there, and um, so for for you know for people listening, it's a, it's a beautiful book for everyone, you know, and it's understanding. Um, just uh, history and thriving and family and tradition, right? And and there's a great recipe here. So you could even have a good cooking day <laughs> making fry bread and and just really embracing the uh the beauty of of different cultures and different foods and the history. It is a great book to teach. It's a great teaching book, right? And it's and, and fry bread is also a wonderful metaphor of where the history, the the you know the 
the the history of the Native American people of when they were taken off their lands. I mean, there's so much that you can use to help people understand and have conversations, right? And not only for yeah. Native American children, but for all children. And, and there are so many different ways of making fry bread. So when um, I went to graduate school in Michigan, this is enough. I keep talking about these different schools, but I popped around a lot. I went to graduate school in Michigan, <laughs> and I was around a lot of Chippewas. And these Chippewa people are from Michigan, they're from Minnesota, they're from Wisconsin. And so they have this way of saying, this is the right definition of fry bread, right? So then we're all talking about foods and, and home. And, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma. All these people grew up in the upper Midwest. And so we're talking about fry bread, and they're telling me, your version of fry bread is wrong. You know that. And fry bread is one of those argumentative foods, like it could be matzo ball soup or baklava <laughs> or, you know, um, you know some uh, kugel. Um, any of these <laughs> foods where the only way that you know is the way that your mom or your grandma or somebody in your family made it, and that way is the best. And so fry bread is definitely the same. And I make it the way that these old ladies in my family made it, and then that's what I think is great. So if I have, like, different kinds of fry bread – it's not fry bread to me because that's not what I grew up, you know, accustomed to. And so even the colors can be different of the bread. I like to cook mine for a little bit longer so they're like a deep brown. Other people might like it like a light, toasty, golden brown. The shapes can be different. The ingredients can be different. So there's such like a wide variety of what fry bread can actually be. And that's the same way that there could be a massive diversity in the way that Native people are, right? You can live in cities, you can live in suburbs, you can live on reservations, you can look like a black person, you can look like a white person, you can look like what the movies and TV tell us that Native people look like. But they're all still members of these tribes and they think of themselves as Native people. One of the my favorite parts of the book in the end papers, um, and, you know, at the beginning and the end, it's called the end papers, like right when you open the book or the very, very last page that's um, connected to the cover, we put the names of every single tribe in the United States. And we were really inclusive about this because this book is about you are Indian when you think you are Indian and where you shouldn't have other people tell you or deny you of that identity if you truly believe that that's who you are. So we list all 570-something federally recognized tribes. There are 100 or so state-recognized tribes. And then there are also a lot of groups that call themselves tribes, and they've gone through the recognition process, but they were denied. And still these native groups will say, we don't need the government to tell us that we're Indian. Mm -hmm. We still believe okay. that we're a group and we, sh we don't need that external approval. So in the spirit of inclusivity, and this is what this whole book is about, you know, like Indian people are different. They look, you know, like whatever. Um, they have different traditions. But 
they are all joined by those connections to other people and that feeling of community. So for inclusivity's purposes, we listed all, every single one of those tribes in the end papers. And it's just amazing, even when I still look at it today, and I've seen this book, you know, a million times, I'm still very overwhelmed with emotion when I look at that massive mm -hmm. list, right? Because there are mm -hmm. so many tribes that I had never heard of before, all these Alaskan villages or rancherias in California or pueblos um, in New Mexico that I had never heard of before. But now all of these Native people and kids who have never had a book about them that recognizes them, they can look on the list of all of these tribes and find their name listed in these end papers. And I got a great email from a teacher in Albuquerque, and she was saying, this book is just so rich for my students. And unlike books that we've read, it was like a second grade class, unlike other books that we've read, the kids have never really felt seen in the books. And they mm -hmm. enjoyed being able to point to their, you know, teeny tiny Pueblos that were listed in this book, and they were showing them to their non-native classmates. So this is a way of allowing these kids to be famous, you know, of sorts, right, to see themselves reflected, just the same way that people like to get their name in the newspaper or people like to see themselves on TV. It's a way of affirming one's existence, right, and of saying that I exist and then that I am worthy of other people to gaze on me, and then that my situation, my accomplishment, my whatever, it says that I am a part of history. So then, like, by saying that all of these tribes have a separate name in these end papers, we're allowing all of those people to validate themselves on the pages of the book. Yeah, it's beautiful because it's filled. It's filled. I, you know, it's fascinating to look at all those names, and it does give people a sense of pride in who they are, especially to see themselves yes. in this book. You know, yes. um, well, we've come to the end of our conversation, Kevin. It's been so fascinating talking to you, and I just wish you the greatest success. And I know that your book will have a huge impact on uh, so Thank many you. people and children around the world. And I, I just yeah, wish you all the best in this endeavor. It's a labor of love. So Great. Um, Thank you. You know, We're all very grateful for having more books that appreciate different cultures and allow people to really honor their past and their tradition. So uh, I know that's really important for me in my world. So thank you for the wonderful work. And who knew that you were a children's book writer now, along with <laughs> yeah. your other credentials, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll let you go because I know your class is going to be wanting to have that fry bread soon when we get off <laughs> from the show. <laughs> so um, just want people to know that they can learn more about you, Kevin Maillard, M-A-I-L-L-A-R-D.com, and Fry Bread, A Native American Family Story. I would imagine that can be purchased on Amazon, the normal booksellers, Any anything else right. you need to know? Um, or at, I encourage everyone to support your local independent bookstore. Okay, but we've got 
lots of great independent news uh, bookstores around the country. So good. Um, and if they don't have it, then request it, right? And they'll bring it in. Yes. So, um, yes. Kevin Maylard, thank you so much for the great conversation, the great work you're doing. It's just been an absolute delight having this time with you today. Just once again, wishing you all the best. Thanks for having me on. It's been it's been wonderful. And to all my listeners, thank you. And remember, make sure your week is filled with love, peace, and harmony. Until next time, have a great week. Bye for now. <laughs>